Good evening, everyone. Uh, D.T. Suzuki, you might have heard of him, is a renowned Japanese Zen teacher. He's historically important because he was one of the early people to bring Buddhism uh, to the West. And he visited UCLA in the 60s, and th this story is told by a person who was there. We all sat in silence. This guy walks onto the stage and up to the microphone. He adjusts his glasses. This is him, D.T. Suzuki. We've seen pictures of him before, but he looks smaller. He reaches out and taps the mic. A hollow ping sounds through the hall. He says, Zen Buddhism, very hard to understand. Thank you. Then he walked off the stage. <clears throat> and the Buddha. After his awakening, he actually was seriously considering not teaching. Uh, these are some words out of the Pali Canon, <clears throat> the discourses of the Buddha. This Dhamma that I have attained is deep, hard to see, hard to realize, peaceful, refined, subtle, beyond the scope of conjecture. And if I were to teach it and no one would understand, that would be vexatious to me. But as the story goes, <clears throat> you know the rest of it. So tonight we're going to explore again some concepts that may be uh, a little challenging. So I want to... Uh, evoke the advice and protection of a great sage uh, that, that informed me many years ago, and his words continue to inform me uh, day by day. I guess it was a, about four decades ago, myself and several intrepid psychic explorers found ourselves in Harvard Square about three o'clock in the morning one summer evening in a slightly altered state. So, and we came upon this old man who was wrapped around a parking meter with his hands like this, mantis-like. And so there wasn't hardly anybody else in the square. And he saw us and he said, come closer, boys, come closer. So we got up close, and he had these really thick glasses, you know, and, and his eyes were all distorted. Maybe ours were too. <laughs> and, and he said, there's two things you need to know. Don't forget this. You need to know how to swim and have a sense of humor. Got it? So I've never forgotten the words of the mantis. Very deep dharma. So tonight when some of these concepts are like, what? Remember, keep swimming, have a sense of humor, let it wash over you lightly, have some fun. Okay. What's the usual way that you view the world? Is it from a 
self-centeredness most of the time? I mean, the ordinary self-centeredness that we think of in a conventional sense might be something your therapist helps you with or, or your friends point out to you on a regular basis. Um, but for our purposes tonight, it means to hold on to something tight to the center of your life, or a, a reference point for everything that happens, everything you think, say, or do. That there's a felt sense that there's someone behind all of this, behind every experience that you're having. And that self-centered reference point usually gets articulated with a semblance of words, my body, my emotions, my thoughts, um, everything revolving around this gravitational field of self. Everything you consider your daily life to be, your ordinary life, your hopes, plans, fears, relationships, work, every experience, self-oriented around moi. Really, it's how most folks see the world, so don't, don't feel singled out. Okay, so you drag yourself out of bed in the morning, you pass by a mirror, and there's something or somebody staring back at you, unless you're a vampire, and then there's no reflection. So in its conventional sense, you're there, and you're separate. You're a unique blend of physiological and psychological characteristics. Nobody is just like you. You are a proverbial, like a proverbial snowflake, a unique expression of creation, and that's, that's beautiful. Now, at the same time you say yes to this conventional unique existence, uh, you're deeply interconnected, and we've been touching on that this week a lot. From the Yen school of Buddhism, you get the jeweled net of Indra. I don't know if you've heard of that. There's this vast cosmic net, and at each, each corner of the net there is a jewel, and each jewel reflects all the other jewels. And in a more earthly plane, does everybody see the cloud in this piece of paper? No? Yes? Some? Some do, I know you do. Um, all right, this is paper. It comes from a tree. You know, it needs moisture. Clouds supply moisture. There's also soil in this. The tree needed soil. There's sunlight in this. There's actually, if you think about it, the origin of our universe as we know it. And the Big Bang is it formed in this. And if you take it a little further, somebody cut the tree down. That person had people that took care of them when they were a baby and educated them and medical staff that took care of them and, and other people that made their clothes and on and on and on and taught them how to use the equipment to take the tree down. And then there was the truck and someone designed the truck and someone discovered how to use this black stuff that came out of the ground to make an internal combustion engine that carried the wood and somebody designed the roads and somebody designed this and that and people took care of all these people so you see where I'm going how is there anything that's separate you know how, how do you get separate 
Carl Sagan said, uh, there's, no, there's not one cell in your body that was not part of a star. So we meet here and we're, we're in each other's presence. You're part of my experience. I'm part of your experience. It's all interpenetrating. We can feel the presence of each other. You know those times where you think somebody's looking at you and you look and they are? Okay. So this separation is a, is a conventional concept. And it's convenient to refer to yourself as I in a separate sense. But that really belies the truth of what's going on. So let's look at this scientifically for just a second. And this is from, if you consider Will Bryson a scientist in his book, A Short History of Nearly Everything. He says, all things are made of atoms. They are everywhere and they constitute everything, and they are in numbers you really can't conceive. At sea level, at a temperature of 32 degrees Fahrenheit, one cubic centimeter of air, a space the size of a sugar cube, will contain 45 billion billion molecules. That's even more than the national debt. A molecule contains a minimum of two atoms, and they are in every single cubic centimeter you see around you. Atoms, in short, are very abundant. They're also fantastically durable. Because they are so long-lived, atoms really get around. Every atom you possess has almost certainly passed through several stars and been part of millions of organisms on its way to becoming you. We are each so atomically numerous and so vigorously recycled at death that a significant number of our atoms, up to a billion for each of us, it has been suggested. Probably once belonged to Shakespeare. A billion each may come from Genghis Khan, Beethoven, and the Buddha, and any other historical figure you can name. The personage has to be historical as it takes atoms some decades to become thoroughly redistributed. So we are all literal reincarnations. So, what's your mix of atoms? And you guys have a lot of Buddha atoms that make you interested in this stuff? Don't know. Now, if you look into the very nature of atoms, it gets even stranger. Uh, if you blow up the nucleus of the atom, and you remember 10th grade chemistry or wherever they taught it to us, the, the proton and the neutron in there, if you blow that up to the size of a pea, the electron that goes around it would be about a quarter mile away the size of a piece of dust. There's a lot of space there. And if we look even closer into those particles, the, the parts that make up the atom, you find that there are smaller subatomic particles that form and dissolve millions of times a second. And if you look a little further, what we get is vibrating space. So, fields of energy we're just learning about. So then, what are we? Now, if you try to hold fast, grip onto that conventional sense of self, that it's something static, permanent, uh, it really flies in the face of science. And it also diverges 
what the Buddha discovered empirically through doing just what you're doing, utilizing this fathom-long body, exploring, and out of that, understanding the very nature of nature. So how is it with this kind of almost obvious scientific truth, how is it that, that most of us uh, get stuck most of the time in this conventional perspective? Well, what we seem to do is unconsciously assign certain characteristics to the cell and characteristics that really aren't there. And so one way to explore this self, whatever it is, is to, ter- is to determine what the self isn't. So let's look at a few of these hidden beliefs. Now one, one characteristic that you might tend to assign to self is continuity. The, the me or the I or the self throughout time is, is unchanging. You feel that the same person listening to this talk is the same person who went to that grammar school, learned how to ride a bike at age six, got the measles at age eight, you know, the whole thing. That, that's the same unchanging person. Now, the strength of your belief, the strength of your belief in the same continuous self, if that's strong or weak, whatever that strength is, the level will affect the level of your resistance to the changes in life, the usual changes, aging, sickness, death, separation, loss. Depending on the strength of that unconscious belief, that belief in the continuity of self, adapting to change is either going to be more difficult or less difficult for you, depending on how strong you believe in this continuity of self. Let's go on. Remember, just keep swimming, keep your sense of humor with all this. Let's look at another unconscious belief. You might also have come to unconsciously believe that there is an observer, or maybe consciously believe that. Someone who sits apart from your changing body sensations, thoughts, and emotions. Like like that little person, the the Greeks were interested in these questions, and they said, oh, there's this thing called a homunculus. It's inside us, and it like pulls all the strings and levers like the wizard behind the curtain. And even when you practice a whole lot, you still think, well, there's this observing self, even though you can't find exactly where he or she is. It's, it's just a persistent feeling that most meditators have. But after we investigate, investigate some more, you find that this felt observer can't be pinned down in either form or location. So can this observing sense, this sense of observing be me if I really can't find it? It's just an inquiry. Got to check it out. Another unconscious belief that we have is that of control that we have some measure of control over the me. Now, if you had control over your heart-mind-body complex, 
Maybe you choose some other characteristics. Maybe you'd be a little more organized, maybe a little smarter, a little healthier, a little more compassionate, a little more equanimous, whatever you would like to control. But we don't have any significant control over this body, these thoughts, these emotions. Now you're probably thinking, well, we make, we make some choices. And because we do, the argument goes that there's, there's something or somebody making these decisions. Okay, that's a reasonable position. It's another point of inquiry to check it out, self-reflection. So when the Buddha spoke of being empty of self, his point was that these unconscious assumptions that we have, they're not really true. They're not really true in any entity that can be discovered. That there is no continuous abiding entity. That there is no center of experience. There is no wizard behind the curtain. And that we don't have ultimate control over this I. And that when we look, we can't find a central core. Empty of self. Shunyata is the Pali word. It has many meanings in the different Buddhist traditions, but they all come together with the understanding that all things, all phenomena, every arising is empty of self and empty of any inherent substantial existence. Let's do a reflection together. So finding a comfortable position. And take some moderate sized breaths, not the deepest breath, but take a number of continuation of some deeper breaths. Taking some moments to soften in the face. Bringing a, an awareness to the neck, shoulders, relaxing. And as you breathe these slightly exaggerated breaths, Allow any tension, any accumulated tension to release down the arms, out the hands. On each exhale, discharging tension. And discharging tension down the torso, out the legs, out the bottom of the feet. Really emptying on the exhale. Allowing the breath to become more normal, if you wish, or continue with slightly exaggerated breaths if it feels good. And just allow the mind to be relaxed. Spacious. Not busy in any way, not needing to do anything. <coughs> or undo anything, 
open, aware, at ease. Allowing, receptive, at rest but awake, in this quiet, calm awareness, there's a sense of purity, of vastness. And within this vastness, this vast awareness, perceptions arise. They arise, but don't disturb. Sounds may arise and be known. Knowing occurs without effort. Knowing sound, very simple. Allowing the mind to be expansive, wide, open, just like a cloudless, bright, clear sky. allowing the sounds to appear and disappear in the vast open space of awareness. No attachment to the sound. No resistance to the experience. The mind clear, limitless, like the sky. Now don't believe me. Look into the mind and see what you find. Relax and release. No resistance to the sound or resistance to the absence of sound. Without expectation and fixation, the mind is open, free, bright, within this open field of awareness. Sensations may be known, points of feeling that arise and pass, like stars in the night sky. Changing points of sensation of embodied life. No head, no shoulders, no arms, knees, no back, no buttocks, no feet. 
simply points of sensation that arise in the vast open space of awareness. Open, knowing, clear knowing of changing phenomena as they arise. Phenomena are known and pass, causing no reaction, creating no ripple. Relaxed, calm, still. No inside, no outside. No before, no after. Awareness is like space. No thing, and yet aware, awake. Thoughts, images, internal talk may float through like clouds in the sky. They visit, but don't disturb awareness. Look into the nature of awareness. Clear, transparent. Notice the show, whatever arises and passes. Notice the show without grasping or pushing. In knowing the mind is vast space, thoughts and emotions don't harm us. Okay, and this from Rumi. Live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. Live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. That's a description of the dance between the relative and the absolute, between the conventional and what's absolutely true. I mean, I think all of us probably have a seven-digit postal code. So we have that conventional reality. And is it also possible to, to, to experience this larger reality? I think it's, it's easier than you might think. I mean, everyone has moments of effortless flow. You know, you may be gar you may like to garden. You may have those moments in gardening or engaging in some form of athletics or playing music or singing or listening to music. You're just quietly sitting in nature. And in those moments, sometimes it feels like things are just unfolding by themselves, doesn't it? You know, like without us. 
And usually in those moments, it's, it's unfolding for the better without us. So that flow, that zone, it's available and we've all experienced it. This from the poet Li Po. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. And how about right here this week? We walk together, the walking and me, until only the walking remains. We eat together, the food and me, or the eating and me, until only the eating remains. We breathe together, the breath and me, until only the breath remains. This from Zen Master Dogen. Delusion happens when we see all that is from the viewpoint of self. Awakening happens when we see ourselves from the viewpoint of things in nature. Just the nature of nature remains. Have you ever noticed that when you're around certain teachers or people that have practiced a lot or are realized in some way um, that you feel something different? A couple months ago, the Dalai Lama came to Charlottesville, and I was lucky enough to have a seat like four rows back from the stage. So I'm sitting there, and I'm just, I've never been this close to him. And so I'm, I'm just feeling, well, what's, what's this guy about? He's like a world treasure, you know? And there was this kind of emptiness, emptiness factor. Yeah, I mean, it was pronounced. I mean, there was this activity of uh, compassion. I mean, you could feel that. There was an activity of joy. You could feel that. There was this activity of curiosity. You could feel that. But he was empty. It was very different. And a couple of years ago, I had the honor of uh, Bhante Gunarantana staying at my house for some R&R. Now, Bhante Gunaratana is in his 80s. He's been practicing meditation for over 70 years. He, too, is a world treasure. Not as well known. He's close by in West Virginia. But, so just hanging out with him, we'd go for walks. I'd do some cooking. We'd be chatting. I was getting this kind of altered state feeling being around him. It was, uh, it was very unusual. But I also noticed... Um, sometimes being around people like, and in Bhante Gunaratana in particular, you know, because I had that close association, um, it wasn't altogether pleasant. Why, you may think. Because in some way they, without trying or doing any, anything, they reflect back to us our own holding. We feel the contrast. And so we can go two ways with that. You know, we can get a little down about it. It's like, oh, God. Or 
it can be seen as our potential. It can be inspirational, really motivating. I can do that, you know. This, I, can, I can live like this and practice and open to that realization. Little story. Uh, the true self. A woman came to the monastery determined to ask the abbess how she could discover her true self. She had assumed many identities over her lifetime, most of them identities others had expected her to have. When she presented her concern, the abbess replied, since knowing the true self is so important for you, you should ask the question of someone who has fully penetrated the issue. We have a very learned monk here who has read every Buddhist scripture and the many commentaries. He has studied with some of the greatest Buddhist teachers of this age. He has spent years meditating and has deep realization. Come, I will introduce you to him. The abbess led the woman into the courtyard where a solitary monk was absorbed in sweeping. That's him, said the abbess. When you're interested in the true self, it's important not to be abstract. Don't ask what the true self is. Ask him what his true self is. Shyly, but with great hope, the woman walked up to the monk and asked, What is your true self? The monk smiled and continued to sweep. Going back to the abbess, the woman said, He didn't answer my question. Quite the opposite, replied the abbess. He gave you the most precise answer he could at this time. When he sweeps, his true self is the sweeping. I sweep until only the sweeping remains. I do the dishes until only the dishes remain. Let's do a little reflection again. We'll kind of angle in on something else here. Let's take some deep breaths again, or deeper. Let the mind again relax, become spacious. Just sensing the openness, the awareness. Continuing to breathe with that slightly exaggerated breath, discharging any tension. Allowing, receptive. Quiet relaxation of the mind, the purity, the vastness of the awareness. Within this vastness, perceptions arise, but don't disturb. In the herd is just the herd. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. Where is this awareness? 
It is, but doesn't exist as a thing. When you look into awareness, where do you look? Does this knowing awareness have boundaries? Does it? Is knowing affected by what is known? Or not? Does this vast awareness have features? Shape, color, size, location. What is awareness? Things are known, felt, heard. What knows? What hears? Now, Turn the attention off the sound you hear and turn it to what knows. Okay. This mind or awareness is not a, not a thing. It's an activity, a verb, a, a happening. Something in us lights up experience. There's an activity that is knowing. An activity is happening. Knowing is happening. Objects are being known. By what? Remember, keep swimming. When I asked the question, what is doing the knowing, was there any shift? Any kind of mind change. Maybe you look for that thing that was doing the knowing but didn't know what it was, but not necessarily an I, but something. Did anybody feel a stopping when you looked? Maybe a widening. Maybe just a little, a tad more interest. Now, from a practice perspective, from the view of skillful means, which we're developing here this week, turning like this opens the mind to mystery. It can bring, it can bring up the level of interest and also a greater stillness, openness. Pamasambhava, who took Buddhism from India to Tibet, to, to Tibet, he said this, it is certain that the nature of mind is empty without any foundation whatsoever. Your own mind is insubstantial like the empty sky. Look at your own mind to see whether this is so or not. I mean, we're so used to just extending our awareness outward, you know, especially in daily life. Well, we have to to get things done, manipulate our environment and do, what, do what's necessary. What would it be like if on occasion during the day we turn the mind back on, a, on, a kind of on itself. So even without closing your eyes or doing anything, just, just in a flash, turn the mind back 
and look at itself. Look again. Any shift in that turning back? Okay. I think it's worth a few, a few, uh, a few words on the passive voice. You hear it a lot when we give instructions, and you already heard it tonight um, in, in s- these reflections. Uh, in the passive voice, you, you notice the subject drops out. Um, sounds are known. Sensations are known. Sadness is known. The subject drops out. The you. The self-centered you. If only for a moment. Using the passive voice as a way of sensitizing to the empty nature of, of, of self. It kind of supports that, that awareness. In another way, it's loosening our sense of self when we use it. Uh, and we're using it in that little meditator voice if you're doing notation instead of, you know, my, my knee pain. You know, it's just pain is known or sensations are known. It just has a little bit of spaciousness to it. Another very short reflection. You might close your eyes and take a few deeper breaths. Let your awareness now become broad and expansive again. Within that open space of awareness, everything arises and passes. Now, just put your attention on that vast space of awareness. And as you put your attention on that vast space of awareness, you may feel just a a little more spacious. And what happens to the sense of grasping when your attention is on that vast space of awareness. What, what about grasping? Does it lessen? Does it disappear? Okay. So grasping is essentially a contraction into smallness. You can feel it in the body, in the mind, the heart. And it's generally coupled with thoughts of I, me, mine in some way. And one of the things this little shift offers is that it, it takes our fixation away from the, from the objects and put the attention on this knowing quality of awareness, just resting in the open knowing. You could kind of sense there's not much grasping going on when our attention is there. This from Ajahn Chah. The roof is a becoming, the floor is a becoming, but in the empty space between the roof and the floor, there is nowhere to stand. When there is no becoming, that's where there is emptiness. And to put it bluntly, we say that Nibbana is that emptiness. 
So a roof kind of becoming this thing, floor, this thing, and in between, what's this? Emptiness. Just a little caution, you don't want to you don't want to get seduced into thinking that this this awareness or the spaciousness is just another thing to hold on to. Um, it's not so much a question of spaciousness, although that's a way to describe it. Groundlessness is another another word. Uh, in real emptiness there's no place to stand. There's no strap hanger like in a subway car, no handrail. And emptiness isn't something you develop. You, know, you don't have to develop it. You come back to it naturally when you release any grasping or attachment that's happening. It's just naturally right there. This is uh, from Charles Simic, one of my favorite poets. My secret identity is the room is empty and the window is open. My secret identity is the room is empty and the window is open. Tara used the metaphor uh, of ice to water. When the mind grasps onto something, it's like the mind were solidified, contracted, ice. And we can grasp onto an emotion, a sensation, thought. And when we do that fully, we're totally identified. The whole phenomenological field is completely filled up. It's like there's no air in the room. That's all we know. It's just no spaciousness around it whatsoever. And this goes on all the time during the day. And it's easy for us to see if we pay attention. You know, whether we're caught up in the contraction of wanting or anger or pride or fear or unworthiness, or grandiosity, whatever it is, your kind of identification du jour. I'll give an ice-to-water ice example. Actually, teaching this stuff is so easy. There's so many examples around just reflecting on, on your own life. So yesterday, we're all sitting over in the little teacher's kind of whatever we have over there going on. And we, we have a lot of fun there. We discuss the, you know, the course, and then we solve world problems and you know, everything. So we're having, this, we're having this discussion. And I got off on this venting jag. And there was anger, bitterness. It was kind of venomous. My friends, they noticed it. Oh, you're really, you're really on this. You know, it was in regard to our national political process. <laughs> and specifically, I was having some trouble with certain individuals. <laughs> but this was really, this was really, uh, you know, it just seemed out of, just, it was just a lot. It was out of proportion. It was ice. I was ice, solid. It was like hot ice, you know, if that's possible. Now, it, 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 it required, uh, it was so powerful, it required my full attention. Um, so I really took two meditation periods, the first two this morning, and kind of looking at this. 
you know, start where you are. Remember that from this morning? Uh, but I'm also, um, I'm also reminded in those situations where I'm beginning an exploration like this of uh, 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 Shanul, the 12th century Korean Zen master. And he had, what he called it, was tracing back to radiance. And I always like to talk about this during a retreat, and now's my chance. Um, so he had this conceptualization. And the way it works is you start where you are, no matter what it is. Rage, anger, lust through the roof, whatever it is, that's what you got. So you start there. So what I had was anger. You know, and I it was directing it outward. So, okay, what's, what's going on inside me? So feeling the anger in every way that I could, the heat in my body, the kind of... And simultaneously, also recognizing, hey, I'm suffering. This kind of hurts. This is not pleasant. This is not fun. So there's a kind of, a little bit of self-compassion going on and an exploration at the same time. Where am I feeling it? What, what kind of core beliefs might be going on? You know, and some of those were coming to light. So I'll sit with it, sit with it, allowing it. And then it kind of morphs, it morphed into this feeling of like betrayal. Not as hot as the anger, but there was a, fe- a feeling of, of betrayal and then trying to feel the intensity of that. Feeling betrayed by those who I trusted or had public trust in. And then it moved into disappointment. So in Chanul's word, kind of tracing back the radiance. And then from disappointment, it went into sadness. You know, how are we going to figure all this out? And just the loss. And then it was into grief. And then it was even into loneliness at the end. It was like, I don't fit into any of these political parties. I, I just don't fit. Feeling kind of alone outside. So then my challenge, can I be with that? Can I have compassion for someone who's feeling lonely and outside everything? So sitting with that, sitting with that. And eventually, um, it kind of opened into this kind of more flowing, empty, compassionate kind of feeling. So in Chanul's words, working, tracing back to radiance, starting where I was with the rage, the anger, and working my way back into that kind of radiant opening, which is possible sometimes. But I certainly know this, this is going to, you know, this is going to be revisited. So I guess what I could say, it's not completely to water, more like slush. <laughs> but that's the that's the practice. So the movement from ice to slush to water um, is movement from the attached, solidified heart-mind to the mind of a kind of radiant, knowing, compassionate, empty awareness. From delusion, it's a movement from delusion to wisdom. It's from self-centered, self-righteousness to maybe no center. 
from a, a, a trance state, a solidified trance state, to an awakened state, at least for some moments. It's really not anything hard. It's not something you have to practice, what, 10,000 times, they say, 10,000 hours. Um, the Tibetan teacher, Shabkar, uh, says that the nature's mind is as vivid, that, that the mind's nature is as vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. Ceaselessly responsive. Now compassion, and Tara was talking about this last night, is the natural response of a heart-mind that's not clinging. It's just natural. And it gets expressed in all kinds of ways when the self is empty. I was, uh, I was thinking about um, heroic actions. So I looked them up on the web. And there's like, you know, civilian heroic actions, heroic actions. There's all kinds. You know, people... Um, Rescuing drowning people, rescuing people out of burning buildings, burning cars, people falling onto subway tracks, and people rescuing them, all kinds of things. So I want to just, just share one of them. Uh, Lisa Donath was running late, heading down the sidewalk toward her subway stop in Manhattan's Washington Heights neighborhood. She decided to skip her usual espresso. Donath, 25, had a lot to do at work, plus visitors on the way. Her parents were coming in for Thanksgiving from her hometown of Minneapolis. But as she hustled down the stairs and through the long tunnel, she started to feel uncomfortably warm. By the time she got to the platform, Donath felt faint. Maybe it hadn't been a good idea to give blood the night before, she thought. She leaned heavily against a post close to the tracks. Several yards away, Ismael Mel, Ismael Mel's middle name or nickname, Fenike, 43, and his girlfriend, Melina Gonzalez, found a spot close to where the front of the train would stop. Fenike, a pattern maker, had a mound of sketches waiting for him in his studio. But in the, on this morning, women's fashion was far from his mind. He and Gonzalez were in deep discussion about a house they were thinking of buying. But when he heard the scream, followed by someone yelling, oh my God, she fell in, Finike didn't hesitate. Yanking off the bag he had slung across his 6'3 frame, he jumped down into the tracks and ran some 40 feet toward the body sprawled face down on the rails. No, not you, his girlfriend screamed after him. She was right to be alarmed. By the time Finike reached Donath, he could feel the vibration on the tracks and see the light coming into the tunnel he remembers. The train was maybe 20 seconds from the station. In that instant, uh, Fenique gave himself a mission. I'm going to get her out, and then I'm going to get myself out. Um, he grabbed Donath under the armpits. She was dead weight. She was unconscious. It was hard to lift her. She was just out, he said. But he managed to raise her the four feet to the platform so that bystanders could grab her arms and drag her away from the edge. But as the train closed in, Fenique wasn't finished. He still had to grab and hoist up a man and a teenager who had hopped down to the tracks. 
and then use all the strength he had left to lift himself onto the platform. He did so just seconds before the train barreled past him and came to a stop. So as it goes on, I mean, she had some, you know, she had some injuries, but she was okay, and, and, uh, and they were interviewing him, and, and the comment he made was, um, if I have, if he said, I have a daughter, and I said to myself, I'm going to help this person, she could be anybody's daughter. Now, if Ismail had stopped for self-referential thought, um, weighing it back and forth, um, there was a moment of empty self and, and a spontaneous response from that place of empty self. And this happens all the time. There's lots of heroic acts. They go on daily. Philip Zombardo, a Stanford University professor emeritus, and colleagues and, and colleagues used a national, nationally representative sample of 4,000 adults and found that 20% qualified as heroes. They had helped during a dangerous emergency, taken a stand against injustice, or sacrificed for a stranger. Heroes are ordinary people, said Zimbardo. You become a hero by doing an extraordinary deed. This is interesting. In the study, both blacks and Hispanics were twice as likely as whites to have performed heroic deeds. Zimbardo says they want to do a follow-up to, to, to do follow-up research on the reasons for the racial-ethnic differences, which he speculates could be attributed to greater opportunities to respond, or being discriminated against makes them have more compassion to others in need. The survey also found uh, someone is more likely to be a hero if the individual has experienced a personal trauma or disaster, or the individual has previously volunteered in non-threatening settings, such as a soup kitchen. So in these heroic instances, the, the person doesn't go through a lengthy analysis. For that, in that moment of decision, they just go. They jump in the water, jump in the building, or whatever it is. The solidified self-preserving self shrinks away for a moment. And there's just this spontaneous responsiveness that unfolds. So it happens just like water that naturally moves along in a stream, finds its natural water course to get to the river. And then the river naturally finds its appropriate water course to get to the ocean. Just unfolds. So we say yes to our conventional self. My email address is different than yours. Uh, but on the absolute level, you're much, you are much greater than this. I mean, scientists show you your vibrating space. Mystics point you to your natural perfection. 
a boundless knowing awareness, empty of self, naturally radiant, and naturally spontaneously compassionate. So you navigate your life, relationships, careers, a thousand joys, a thousand sorrows, all the stuff that makes up a life. And if you practice and continue your exploration, you can be informed by and supported by this larger experience, this larger knowing that all events, all phenomena, all of life play out in this boundless field of awareness. An awareness that holds it all with compassion. So let's sit for a moment. This is from Stephen Batchelor. As the deafening chatter of self-centeredness subsides, one recovers that silence wherein one hears more sharply the cries of the world. Thanks for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.